Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Season 6, Episode 5. I'm your host, Dean Jones, and today is St. Patrick's Day, and I'm speaking to a wonderful chef and writer, Darina Allen. Darina runs the famous Ballymallow Cookery School and has published in numerous books such as Irish Traditional Cooking, A Year at Ballymallow's Cooking School, Healthy, Gluten-Free Eating, Easy Entertaining, A Simple Delicious Christmas, 30 Years at Ballymallow, Grow, Cook, Nourish, and the most recent one is Forgotten Skills of Cooking. In addition, Darina has been on multiple programs teaching cooking and has her own YouTube channel. I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk, Darina, and I really think you're going to enjoy this. Well, I want to thank you for doing the podcast with me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. That was really nice. Liven up my afternoon on a drizzly day in Ireland. This is so surreal to be talking to you at all, because, I mean, I've always been a fan of your work and seeing you on TV and stuff, and it's just, wow, I feel... Well, it's great at my age to have a fan. That's very good. I like that. I am. Oh, I always, I love Irish cooking and getting to read about it here in America. It's so wonderful to read about it. And it's really dear to my heart. And it's something I've cooked for my son. He grew up with it, even though, you know, we're not Irish and I don't, I've never been to Ireland. We actually have a window to your food through your books and your TV appearances. So it's Uh, really nice. A lot of Irish food, particularly uh, more traditional Irish food. It's very just comforting, uh, simple, comforting, delicious food that you love to kind of sit down around the kitchen table with and have a kitchen supper. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, when we weren't <laughs> having a lot of money and when things were kind of tight, I was always able to make this stuff and it wasn't like we had to go out and get anything that was hard yeah. to find. Everything was always yeah. there. Yeah. Lots of lovely potato dishes and all of that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he grew up with potato scones and, you know, and a lot of things like that. And it, he just really liked them and all the baked goods, you know, always, I like to bake. So that was always one of my first yeah. go-tos. Oh, good, good, good. That's really nice to hear. And you're sure you don't have any Irish blood in there? You know, um, that's a funny story. We we thought we did. My mother had always told us we did. So I became one of those obnoxious Americans that always talks about his Irish heritage on St. Patrick's Day and makes an ass yeah. out of himself. And I learned Danny Boy and all this stuff. And uh, then my brother, my brother did our genealogical. He says, we are nothing but British. We just have British and that's, and just like nothing but British. And he said, it's embarrassing because we're the most homogeneously British people in the world. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> I felt like an idiot. <laughs> well, never mind. I'll adopt you. I'll adopt you. Thank you. I'll make you an honorary Irish person. Okay. That is wonderful. I'll move. I'll get my, my things together to move tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good. There do we they, go. Do they need any more librarians there? I, I'd love to, love to live there. Oh, my God. I certainly need a librarian for my library. It's a disaster. We're actually cataloging it at the moment. And I've got like maybe 4,000 cookbooks and stuff you can imagine i'm just worrying that the floor isn't actually strong enough to keep them up but anyway yeah but we are cataloging and but at the same time if you're over this way you can give me some advice i would love that if you need me i am there for you i would travel to ireland to help you that would be god that would be like something of my entire that'd be like the highlight of my entire life <laughs> well that, that that's the best offer i've got this afternoon i can tell you 
<laughs> yeah, that no. would that would be a dream. I will come. Call and I will come. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. No, I've loved been. I've been doing research about you, and I've really loved getting a chance to read about your life. And I really liked hearing about how it was for you growing up, and how you know you, how you got into cooking and working in the hospitality business. Do you want to talk about growing up? Like, where did food start with you? Like, your interest in food? How did it start? <clears throat> Good. Well, uh, basically, I'm the eldest of nine children in a typical Irish uh, family of, of my generation. And so uh, my mother, I, I was brought up in a country village, actually, up in the Midlands of Ireland. And my father was a merchant. He had a, a farm as well. And um, my mother absolutely loved to cook. And she cooked every single day. And she made soda bread every day and when we were running running home from school you know you'd walk run into the kitchen you'd smell the bread or scones coming out of the stove in the kitchen and that was my childhood it was my norm and so and with nine of us you can imagine when they'd when they finished tidying up from one meal it was time to start for another so there was always cooking going on in our house and we also had a kitchen garden and apple trees and some plum trees and gooseberries and blackcurrants and and also hens and we had a house cow a Kerry cow a wicked cow, but but very good milk. Kerry milk is very very good milk. Uh, so anyway, we had lovely greens, very simple, delicious food, and so I learned how to cook and how to bake bread, all of those kind of things in a way without even realizing I was learning, because that's the way the skills were passed on years ago from mother to daughter. You'd help, of course, to get the meals, uh, to prepare the meals, and as you were helping, you were you know you were inadvertently obviously learning so and then um, I went actually to uh, I went to the village school the first and then I went to a boarding school in Wicklow which was a couple of hours drive away actually where I was educated by the Dominican nuns and uh, who were considered at that stage and indeed are uh, very visionary nuns and so anyway um, they were encouraging us girls now we're talking about the 60s the mid 60s to late 60s and they were encouraging us girls, because of course it was only girls in, in my uh, at boarding school, um, to have a proper career, do medicine, do the sciences, do, you know, uh, um, architecture, you know, law, etc. And all I wanted to do was to cook or to garden. They were the only two things I knew anything about from my home life. And uh, the, so anyway, they didn't think much of that for an idea, I can tell you. I remember one of the nuns, she was a little small nun and she drew herself up to her full height. And when I told her this, she said to me, well, you're never going to need that, my dear. You know, you're going to have something to cook for you or um, uh, to do your gardens and so on, because you're going to be a career woman. And anyway, I still persisted. And uh, although my friends were doing law and medicine and everything, and anyway, they said, right, well, in that case, you'll have to do hotel management or else uh, do a degree in horticulture. And I had to plan for one or the other. And so uh, I actually decided I would do hotel management, even though I wasn't a bit interested in the management bit of it. I used to mitch classes and go off and play poker, but I never missed a uh, cooking class uh, uh, during my course. And uh, uh, and then um, I and actually I ended up marrying a, a horticulturalist. So. I have, I got both things in the end, but, and then of course, this is at a time now in the late 1960s here in Ireland, um, where men were chefs, a woman could simply not get a job in a top kitchen. And I was desperate at the end of my course to learn 
more about fresh herbs, about ice cream, about terrines and pâtés and soufflés and all the sort of things that sounded super exotic. And uh, I remember, um, and virtually everybody in my class um, had got a job. It was just a few weeks before the end of the course, and virtually everybody had actually already settled and got a job. And the sort of job you would aspire to, having done this management course was an assistant manager in one of the top hotels in Dublin, the Shalbar and Russell or so on. And you'd have a lovely little uniform with your name on it saying you were assistant manager. As far as I was concerned, that was another name for slave. But anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't one, I didn't want that. So, and you know, I often say to my students now, you never know in your life What's the tiny little thing that could make change the course of the rest of your life? And actually, in my case, quite close to the end of the course, um, I met one of the senior tutors in the corridor one day and she stopped me and she said, you haven't got a job yet. Because actually at that stage, there were only a few hundred students in the college. There are now thousands, of course. But um, and, and I, I said, well, no, I'm sorry, I haven't because I really want to get into a top kitchen and I can't get into a top kitchen and and uh, I want to learn what I told her about what I want to learn about and basically she told me I was too fussy but anyway she said funny I the other night I we, I had dinner with some friends they were talking about this woman down in Cork this extraordinary woman who seems to have opened a restaurant in their own house way out in the country in the middle of a farm and she writes the menu every day depending on what is in her gardens and what they live near the sea depending on what fish comes in from the boats in Ballycotton that evening and uh, and I know that she said I remember them saying that they have a jersey herd and she makes her own homemade ice cream and they have their own pigs and and uh, you know a, a walled garden and everything I couldn't believe my ears and she said she uses lots and lots of fresh herbs in her cooking and I just I couldn't believe it. It was like ticking all the boxes. And then I said, that sounds perfect. And because she was a woman, there was a possibility maybe of going with, with her. And anyway, um, she said she couldn't remember the name of the woman. Uh, but she said, look, I'll go back to my friends and ask them. And she came back to me a few days later with a little piece of paper. And she said, that's the name of that woman I was telling you about. Write to her. And the name on the piece of paper was Myrtle Allen. Oh, yeah. And who, who then became my mother-in-law. So I became a member of the family by the simple expedient of marrying the boss's son. So that's how it's done. I like so, that. Yeah, long story. But then, of course, I came to Babalu and met Myrtle, such an inspiration. And she reinforced everything that I, all my mother's values around food. And actually, you see, because in hotel school, they were really telling us, you know, in a way, almost urging us to use, you know, a lot of convenience foods and freeze dried things and things like that. And my mother and indeed Myrtle were all about fresh and and using the, what was in season and all of that. Now, this in the late 60s when it was, um, and local was actually a derogatory term at that stage, yeah. um, where Myrtle really knew how good the local ingredients were and bought from our local butchers and, and, and um, from our, you know, built up a whole network of suppliers uh, to who reared her chickens and ducks and geese and made cheese for her, smoked fish, et cetera, et cetera, in the area. And of course, at that stage, it really, we do have to remind ourselves that at that stage, when restaurants opened, the chef wrote the menu and it was the same 10 years later. The idea right. of actually writing the menu and every day was considered to be incredibly amateurish. Yeah. And, but then 
And now, of course, there are great terms for all these things, cooking from scratch, yeah. you know, farm table, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, Martel, without realizing it, with no training whatsoever, uh, you know, she was a home cook who taught herself, and a very intelligent woman, uh, and uh, traveled a bit and all of that. And But she, um, without realizing it, was just such an incredible pioneer and was... It, you know, eventually in, her influence spread really not through this country, not just through this country, but literally all over the world. Now, I think from what I've read about your biography, Miss um, Allen was just one of the many strong role models you had through your life. Do you want to talk about some of your strong role models that were women? Well, I suppose the earliest ones were my mother and Myrtle, uh, for that matter. Um, and But then there, there were... Uh, of course, when I started the cooking school in 1983 here on our farm uh, as a way of keeping the roof over our heads and passing on um, Myrtle's philosophy and her, uh, you know, the skills and the recipes I learned from her and then building on that. And then, of course, the wonderful thing was then I, when I opened the school, I suddenly realized that I could pick up the phone uh, to some of my food heroes around the world and invite them to the cooking school to teach a guest chef course. And, uh, and there, so that was amazing. So I remember one of the first people I invited, well, it was actually um, Martyr Jaffrey, um, and, uh, yeah. whose name you will know and who's oh, yeah. become, and for many years now, a great friend, and she and her husband. And, and I remember picking up the phone and uh, ringing America dialing America I had never ever telephoned America and I was like I really had to steady myself you know and I'd been given um her phone number by the the um Zan Stewart or Zan Zakharov who was the food editor of Gourmet magazine at that time because Gourmet had actually heard about us and they were so curious about this cooking school on a farm in Ireland. And so they sent somebody over to do a story. And that was in, I think, March 1986. Anyway, Sam then, um, who was the food editor, had come over to do the story. She um, gave me the de uh, martyr's details. I rang her up and I remember hearing the phone ringing. And then this martyr picked it up and I said, hello, this is Darina Allen. I'm telephoning from a little cooking school in Ireland called Ballymaloo. And I just wonder whether you, I so admire your, um, your books and your recipes and love them. And just wonder, would you come and teach guest chef class uh, at our school here in Ireland, it's in the middle of a little farm. And uh, coincidentally, the, the uh, Gourmet magazine article was in that, uh, that month, the previous month in March, 1986. And, she, Marjorie, and they had done a cover story on us. Can you imagine the first cooking school they ever wrote up uh, because it was such an extraordinary, it sounded like an oxymoron, a cooking school now that you travel to Ireland to a cooking school, the land of corned beef and cabbage at that stage, they thought. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> Marjorie, it sounded like contradiction terms, but Marjorie had seen the article and she had said, is that the place that Gourmet wrote about? And I said, well, yes. And so she said, I'd love to come. So, I mean, I remember putting down the phone and punching the air with the excitement of that. And of course, she has always been such an inspiration to me. Now, one of our most favorite places to go is, of course, to um, uh, we try, go to India every year several times. But um, so uh, that was wonderful. She came and thought of the school here several times, as did Claudia Roden, 
and Shri Owen and, um, you know, Marcella Hazan. I mean, can you imagine what it was like to pick up the phone to all of these food heroes? It was like going to your library, and I'm sure you do this as well, and picking up the phone to the authors. And, you know, for some reason, everybody wanted to come to Ireland. Uh, to, to And so they all, literally everybody said yes. So it was fantastic for Irish people as well. Indeed, people flew in from the UK and everywhere to be able to have the opportunity to um, learn from these iconic uh, food writers. So there were many, many, many people. Now you studied hotel management in Dublin. Uh, what was this like for you um, to study this um, and how did it influence what you would come to do later on? Well, basically I had um, really, I, I was, I, I had no intention of being hotel manager. It didn't that, even though I'm, you know, I love right. people. I've, I was brought up, uh, I'm a shopkeeper's daughter. Uh, my father would have said a merchant, but anyway, I'm a shopkeeper's daughter. And so I was used to, you know, meeting people and all that like that. Yeah. But still, I really loved the kitchen more. And that's what I wanted. So I suppose in a way, the hotel, that, the hotel management uh, actually opened the doors to Balmaloo for me. And actually, interestingly, I didn't realize until years later that when I wrote to Myrtle from Cahalborough Street in Dublin, she was incredible asking, wondering whether... I could come and work with her and learn from her. Um, she was incredibly chuffed because you see, she had no formal training. Um, so she thought, oh my goodness me, imagine somebody from this famous hotel school in Dublin wants to come and work with her. So she was very chuffed that I wanted to come and work with her. And of course I was thrilled to bits to get a, you can imagine. I mean, how fortunate was I that our paths crossed in life. And I know not everybody says that about their mother-in-law, but my goodness. A uh, wonderful, inspirational woman. Uh, so yeah, so that opened the door to Balmaloo for me. And you know, I never really left Balmaloo then because, of course, I, as I said earlier, I married her eldest son. So, uh, is that where you got the impetus to start the Balmaloo Cooking School? Well, um, you know, um, I'll tell you now. My husband is a farmer and horticulturist. So, my, in fact, my father-in-law Ivan Allen had a, a big four hundred acre farm, which is around. Ballymoot House, or what you would call the inn. And then we inherited, we're very lucky we inherited a smaller farm, a hundred acre farm, which we've been farming organically, actually, on organic principles for over 30 years now. But anyway, it was a, and with a big horticultural unit, five acres greenhouses, a big mushroom farm, 65 acres of apples, et cetera. Now we're now back in the 19, um, the 19, we got married in 1970. So um, and the, at that stage, it was a very big horticultural business exporting, um, you know, mushrooms, tomatoes and everything uh, out of Ireland to the UK and, and indeed to Holland, actually, as well, amazingly. Uh, but anyway, um, in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a sort of perfect storm as far as we were concerned. This was a horticulture business that, em that employed over 100 people. So was, this was not a Mickey Mouse affair. Uh, so anyway, at that stage... Um, there was a big recession in Ireland in the late 70s, early 80s, um, a very serious recession. It didn't really matter that much to us because we had no money anyway, but we're a young married couple. Um, but anyway, but we did have several children. And uh, so anyway, the, there was the, so then there was a, a big recession. There was the oil crisis, 25% inflation. We were heating, by the way, a five acres of greenhouses, not very, they were quite not efficient uh, greenhouses, 
uh, with oil. So oil increased by 400% the price in one year. Uh, and then we went into the EU in 1973, I think. Then this tidal wave of new food regulations and everything came pouring in on top of us. The supermarkets came on stream. And the final thing was the cheap food policy kicked in. So that was like the total perfect storm for us. So instead of getting a little bit more for your produce every year, um, you actually ended up getting less for it. And I mean, you know, now many of us are getting being paid, many people who are producing vegetables and fruit and horticultural produce are actually getting less or the same as what they got 10 years ago. It's a disaster. It's a total disaster because uh, farmers and food producers are not being in many of our countries are not being paid enough at the moment to produce nourishing wholesome food. Yeah. Uh, and so disaster in health terms and socioeconomic terms. And basically, you know, I was brought up that your my mother knew that our food should be our medicine. And basically, as she used to say, if you don't put the effort into the food on the table, you give the money to the doctor or the chemist. And I mean, it's very clear that the less you spend on food, the more you spend on meds. So it's much better to pay the farmer a bit more and uh, rather than spending it on the doctor. But anyway, that's a whole other matter. But it is that is incredibly serious. So yeah, anyway, absolutely. And we we for a bit we um, we used to sell our produce from our horticultural units to a wholesaler in Cork, and then as I said, the supermarkets came on stream, and and you know we were getting beginning to get less for our produce, and they were complaining about even though we had graders and everything when we went into the EU, you know, if you couldn't sell a, a cucumber if it wasn't super straight and exactly the right size to fit in the yeah. box in the supermarket all this nonsense and a ridiculous waste of food. But anyway, um, we were all kind of reading from this. Uh, but anyway, somebody said, forget the wholesaler, just go to directly to the supermarket. So we were thrilled to bits. We got a, a, a contract with one of the big supermarket chains, which I won't mention the name because they're still here in Ireland, very successful, and to sell apples. So anyway, we graded all the apples. My husband would go in early in the morning but they had to deliver the apples into the supermarket and some, you know, they, they, this buyer would say, put them there on the shelf and no, no respect or anything. But anyway, and then somehow or other, they're regularly, they seem to send back some or they wouldn't pay. We had a contract, of course, with them. Now, before that, all of our daily business dealings were done on a handshake, but now you, we had a contract. And then somehow or other, they regularly seem to send some of the produce back or say there was this or that. And then we thought, then, you know, we first we thought we, you know, we just said, oh my goodness, something must have happened. Then we realized this was not actually, this was not an accidental thing. This was actually policy. Anyway, this went on for a bit. And I remember we had a lovely time every day when my husband would arrive back from Cork. I'd have sent the kids to school because we had um, the three and almost four children at that time. And they'd gone to school. And then we'd, both have breakfast together when he came back from Cork and it was a lovely little moment every day. And I remember one day I can still see him walking in through the kitchen door, looking even more despondent than ever, because this had gone on now for quite a couple of months, this carry on with the supermarket. And so anyway, he came in and he said, I don't care if I have to walk on my, if I have to crawl on my knees, I'm never doing that again. He'd gone in yet again to the supermarket, some young pup of a of a supermarket buyer who couldn't have grown an apple to save his life, but was on a commission, we now know, to get send stuff back and find fault with things. Um, he had again, you know, complained about something. And so Timmy said, that's it, never again. 
He said, we have to find a different way to earn a living. We could see the writing on the wall, prices were not going to go up again. Uh, so he said, we have to find a different way to earn a living or otherwise we're going to lose the, lose the roof over our heads. Now, when I was at boarding school and when I was at Cardbury Street in Dublin, I had only one ambition and that was really, I had no ambition to be a career woman, despite lots of my um, classmates. All I wanted was to hopefully find a nice chap, preferably with money uh, that I could marry. And then I would have um, a few cute kids and go on picnics and I'd paint my nails. And that was the absolute height of my ambition. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> here we are um, with this situation. And Whole so- Whole different story. <laughs> decided he'd put me out to work. And so, you know, I was very fortunate I could cook and I thought, and I did realize at this stage that some of my friends that, all, you know, if we had a few friends around for a little simple bit of supper in the kitchen, you know, they often say to me, even if it was mac and cheese or something, how did you make that? I was like, so delicious. And I'd say, oh, look, it's so simple. You just do this and this and this. Because of course I, I, I cooked in Ballymoo Kitchen for years and was the head chef when Merkel was writing the Ballymoo cookbook and everything. But anyway, so I'd say, oh, you know, and. And our food was very simple, but really good ingredients. Anyway, I say, look, it's so easy just to do this and this. So I realized that some of my friends, you know, couldn't, didn't seem to find it as easy as I did to cook these things. So I thought, well, um, and why don't I, why don't I do some cooking classes? And uh, out of that then was born, uh, the, we converted some farm buildings in our yard uh, into a cooking school in September, 1983. And we opened in September, in 1983. Um, and we uh, borrowed money and worked like, you know, whatever to uh, pay it back. And we're still doing something. <laughs> but anyway, love, love, love what I'm doing and feel very fortunate to be able to pass on the skills that I was so fortunate to learn um, from indeed from my mother, from Myrtle and right through. And then I traveled quite a lot as well. So, of course, I'm, and I'm endlessly curious. I'm always asking questions and learning and learning. I was in Mor Morocco there about two weeks ago and again came back with lots of new tagine recipes and some of the Moroccan bread recipes. And we add those to the repertoire and then share those with the students and all of that. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. Did working with your husband, who is a horticulturist, you must have had a lot of knowledge of local plants and things that were growing around you. I remember living in Napa myself and we didn't have a lot of money and I could forage food. There was food everywhere around us. And we had an embarrassment in California. We have an embarrassment food everywhere, but most people don't even know it's there. Did you have yeah. somewhat of that experience in Ireland where young people don't know what's around them, like nettles and stuff? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and actually funny, Again, when I came to Bamaloo in the beginning, yeah, as I said, Merkel would write the menu every day, depending on what was in the garden and blah, 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 all of that. And anyway, I remember local kids used to come to the kitchen door with little tin cans of wild mushrooms and wild blackberries and damsons and sloes. And, and they'd say, is Mrs. Allen there, Mrs. Allen there, uh, with their little shiny faces, because she would buy the, the wild foods from them and uh, then put it on the menu. Now, this is at a time when you may or may not remember there was restaurant food 
and there was home cooking and right. they were completely different. Yeah. So, I mean, the people, you know, chefs never put um, damsons or even wild blackberries or watercress or, um, you know, samphire or anything like that on the menus that was you know it was just a different thing so then of course so that she incorporated wild foods into her menu automatically um as would my mother would have done at that too but it wasn't until years and years later i was a member i became a member of the iacp the international association of cooking professionals there that you it's in a north american organization which you may possibly know the name of um on the advice again of lovely Sam stewart from gourmet magazine because it was at, in the beginning, it was a lot of cooking schools. Anyway, uh, they would have um, regional conference. They would have a conference in the North American continent every year, or in this particular one was in Vancouver, actually in Vancouver. And then we went out to Vancouver Island. I think it was a regional in Vancouver Island, and we met uh, Sinclair Phillips. We were went to have lunch with Sinclair Phillips at Sue Carver House, and uh, I remember. It was all very exciting because they had talked about um, the Sinclair had an in-house forager. Now oh. the yeah, now we're talk we're definitely talking the nineties. I would say the early nineties at this stage. So now, and I thought, oh, foraging. Now that's what that's the word for what we always used to do when we collected, you know, nettles and uh, you know winter cress and all of these things. So anyway, we had this delicious lunch. Of course, in fact, uh, Sinclair. Uh, dived for his own scallops and everything um, mm. and we had a delicious lunch and I came back home and I said look um, you know I'm going to teach a foraging course so uh, we've been doing foraging courses here at the school uh, for oh my goodness 20 something years now and I remember the first one I put on I had a few about six amused people uh, and now but and now we're doing it every single season because here in Ireland, we have a long growing season and all throughout the year, even in the winter, there are lots of things growing. And uh, so, and every single foraging course now is full. It's become super cool uh, to incorporate wild foods and to indeed learn, oh my goodness, and to um, learn how to incorporate wild food into your uh, thing. And also all this free, I mean, the wild food is free food. And boy, have we had the way... And my goodness, have we had an extra wake-up call in the last uh, couple of weeks with uh, Ukraine? The whole uh, food security issue has is really yeah, that's terrifying. People, uh, utterly terrifying. The Ukrainians are fighting for all of us, uh, but basically, and we're actually and just yesterday here at the school, uh, we raised nearly fifteen thousand euros. My brother Rory O'Connell and Rachel wow. and I did a, did a, an online. Um, cookery demonstration and then some of the students made brownies and another student did Sri Lankan um, oh, oh she did uh, roti and uh, some Sri Lanka other Sri Lankan dishes for the students and we raised some and we're and we're just getting, we're getting involved now and in sending out a whole um, a, a whole lorry load truck full of food which Irish cheese and things out uh, to Ukraine anyway that's slightly beside the point but what I'm trying to say there is it's really important that we think about being um, more self-sufficient even if you're living in a city maybe you can grow something on your windowsill or on a balcony you can grow some of your own food but also to be able to recognize wild foods that are edible in your local park and so on um, you know you incorporate and the fantastic thing about wild food is that 
so much of the food on our supermarket shelves now is nutritionally deficient because I think there's lots of research, but they say that if a lot of the meat and vegetables and things like that are, if they have 50% of the nutrients in them they had in the 1950s, it's amazing. So, so much of our food because of the cheap food policy and everything is actually nutritionally deficient. But all the wild foods have their full complement of vitamins, minerals, and trace elements that we simply are not getting in the ordinary food, particularly in the ultra-processed food that many people are now living on and to the, the serious detriment of their health. I, For myself, if I want something good, usually I have to go to a farmer's market. The grocery store yeah. near me that we shop at, the produce is complete crap. I mean, it's, it's, it's mm. worthless. But we have a lot of good stuff locally. Now, I know that you work with a local, you're a big <laughs> champion of the local farmer's market yeah. movement. Yeah. Uh, where are you ringing me from, actually? Well, I'm from the Bay Area. I live in farm country yeah. outside of the Bay Area. I work in, I work in like near San Francisco, but I yeah. live outside of it. Yeah, we are the wonderful farmer's market there. Actually, I must tell you, yes, you were just about to ask me. I've been involved with the farmer's market movement here since the very beginning. And actually, it was a trip to San Francisco where I went to the very first farmer's markets. And oh, my goodness me, that was nearly 30 years ago. Um, I was going to visit a, a friend of mine who had a cooking school in San Francisco called Mary Risley at mm -hmm. Tom Marie School, whom you may indeed know. She's now retired. And I'd flown over and I'd been traveling for over 20 hours. And I remember Mary saying to me, look, we won't stay up late. We'll have a little cheese and a glass of wine or whatever, because I want to get up really early in the morning. I want to get up about seven because I want to take you down to the farmer's market. Yeah. There's this farmer's market just started at the other side of town. Now, at that stage, it was in what you call a parking lot at the yeah. other side of town, even in the Ferry Plaza building, which is now in. And anyway, I said to Mary, I'm not getting up at seven in the morning, but she's even <laughs> bossier than me. So she got me out of bed <coughs> and we went down and this was an incredibly, this was like a light bulb moment for me because it went down. Of course, I'd seen lots and lots of markets in Europe and all of that, but right. this was different. This was different. Uh, so, and at that time, just to put this into context, at that time, as I said to you, I think that um, basically, the supermarkets that come on stream here in Ireland, um, I suppose in the late 70s, early 80s, but anyway, um, and they were, you know, pushing the prices down all the time to the, to the producer. And then they also decided for, you know, economies of scale that they would actually, um, they, that they would have central distribution system. And now before that, they didn't necessarily have that. So, and the supermarkets, the big supermarkets owned a lot of the small local shops as well. And actually what many, much of the general public didn't realize at that time was that they would penalize the shop if they bought more than 2% of local produce. Uh, and for that, you know, our it's little horrible. shop- and, Yeah, it's, oh, yeah, I could go on forever about all of that stuff, but anyway, we won't. Uh, but basically our little shop in the local village, for example, um, they would normally have bought their potatoes and carrots and cabbage and all of those things from local people. Suddenly, um, you know, they could only buy from central distribution. So they'd send up their, they'd take off their list and then it would be put on a lorry and come back down to Dublin, come back down to Shanagary, uh, you know, during the week. And the whole order would come together. Now, it was conceivable that the potatoes from Shanagary 
would have gone to Dublin to central distribution and be delivered back down to Shanagari a few days later, instead of having them totally fresh and everything. Anyway, that's what was happening. That was going on. Most of the local people didn't know that. And a lot of the small local producers uh, who were only sold to local shops suddenly found they had no outlet. So it was disastrous. And local people couldn't get local food. It was incredible. So anyway, here am I, bleary-eyed, half asleep in San Francisco in the, uh, in the parking lot, looking at this farmer's market. And, and it was, you know, there were people down uh, from Napa and all, from, all around the Bay oh, yeah. Area. I think I remember a huge big uh, uh, store just with nothing but sweet peas in tin cans and a wonderful dried peaches. And it must have been sometime in the summer or something, the late summer. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it was beautiful. And then the, the stall holders were completely different. A lot of them are doctors and dentists and lawyers yeah. who seem to have come from the East Coast, moved over. Uh, lifestyle choice. Anyway, fascinating. And then I remember Rose Pistoia. It was a, one of the restaurants in San yeah. Francisco. The restaurants. I'm going back now to the beginning. Uh, several of the restaurants had set up there in the farmer's market. It was a place to see and be seen on a Saturday morning. So anyway, I just thought, oh my goodness. If I could start the farmer's market movement in Ireland, the local people could buy local food from the local farmers again. And um, I, so if I could get, because at that stage, there was no way local people could get local food because of this central distribution system the farmers, the supermarkets had, unless they went directly to a farm. And basically people don't have time a lot of the time, they're busy days. Anyway, I came back all fired up. I told my mother-in-law, Myrtle Allen, about what I'd seen. And we both with a, a gathered a little group of around us and we set up the first farmer's market actually in the Cold Key in Cork um, about, oh golly, that was over 30 years ago, I think. I can't remember. It must have been almost only the second or third year of the, of the San Francisco farmer's market. So when, whatever time that was anyway. And so, and I could see it, pardon me, <coughs> that this could be a solution, not for every farmer, and they could sell directly to the public at the full price for their produce and uh, local people could get local food. So anyway, we started with that market and now, oh, I don't know, there's 160, 180 farmers markets in Ireland. And it is so many farmers would not be still on the land if it wasn't for the farmers markets. And uh, so I'm a big, and I'll tell you what, in a funny way now, um, if you ask me, uh, and you're not asking me, but I'm just saying, if you did ask me, what is the one thing, if I could just pick one thing that I've done and I've been involved in a lot of different, I've had a lot of different hats on over the years. Uh, what is that one thing that I feel most proud of and or feel was a sort of an achievement that, you know, uh, added something and affected people's lives. And it's definitely starting the farmer's markets because um, I really, for all the reasons that you say you can get this lovely produce and as well as that farmers can get a blinking fair price for their produce. <gasps> My goodness. Uh, so that's a joy. And also they can meet the people who are enjoying their food yeah. and the buying can meet the farmer who produces this lovely bond of trust is built up. The farmer's markets are a wonderful thing. I think it's, I mean, for me, I, going to the farmer's market is like the best part of my week. I just love it. It's something you really look forward to. Yes, exactly. And there's, it's a whole, 
um, it's interesting, isn't it? It's uh, wonderful to bring children to a farmer's market too. Yes. But it's all, you, you, you might go in so tense and it's so relaxing. And there's a wonderful, I mean, I'm often on my farm, store at my farmer's market in Middleton is the one uh, we sell, <coughs> still sell, <coughs> pardon me. Okay. We still do two or three farmer's markets a week. One in Middleton, one in Mount Point, and, and uh, there's also one in Douglas, and uh, which is in the suburbs of Cork here. And I often go in and onto the stall, uh, our stall in Farmer's Market in Middleton. I love it. And, you know, there's an extra thing because the customers are so, there's, they buy for you, but they're also so grateful yes. for what you do. They're so grateful for what you do. And uh, because, you know, it's a whole other thing and a whole other, much more, of course, it's a much more personal shopping experience. Um, but also, I find often that a trip to the supermarket is more like a, it's, for me, it's almost a dehumanizing experience nowadays, whereas a, a, a visit to the farmer's market is, oh, it's such a convivial, you know, uh, experience. Well, there was, there's another thing that I saw looking up your information, and that was about the East Cork Educational Fund. Now, this is something okay. I thought was very exciting. Can we talk about this? Oh, yes. Well, another of my hats is my slow food hat. Uh, so I've also been involved in the slow food movement here in Ireland from the very beginning. And, uh, of course, um, I've been involved in the international slow food movement as well, and Carla Petrini and all those wonderful inspiration people. But anyway, uh, the slow food, which is an international movement um, made up of people like you and I who are concerned about you know, trying to find the really good quality food and also to make sure that a lot of the small producers are supported and that those kind of foods are not lost and traditions are continued. And um, but basically it always has an educational element. So we have a um, we have a what do we call a convivia, the Italian word, but it's really like a chapter um, here in East Cork, which we haven't had any events for nearly two years now because of COVID, but we will soon again. But anyway, um, it always has an educational element. So basically, we link in here at the Bramley Cookery School, we link in with nine local schools to teach the children how to grow and how to cook. And we send a chicken coop and two hens to every school. And they must, every school in our little group must have an edible school garden. And the children must be taught how to cook and how to, uh, how to grow food. And, uh, and then also they realize we send a, a chicken coop and two hens to every school so the kids learn how, you know, um, eggs are produced and the scraps from the, their school lunches, they throw into them to feed the hens. Yep. And then they, they clean out the chicken coop and put that onto the compost heap in the school garden. And then they realize that that goes back onto the soil to make the soil more fertile. So basically, uh, it's a wonderful, uh, holistic thing. And... What did I tell you? In one school alone, um, where in one year, the first year we did that, 28 parents started to grow vegetables for the first time and 18 parents got hens. Now, that's how that's what I like to tell people is the best way to use pester power. Because the kids went home, they were so excited uh, and they got their parents to um, start to grow vegetables and uh 
and to keep hens. And then the kids come up here to the Bambi Cooking School and we teach them how to cook. And they go around the farm and gardens and learn about the cows and the chickens and the pigs. And they and then they pick fruit and, you know, pull rhubarb and come into the kitchens and cook it. And yeah, wonderful. They can pick elderflower. That's another, I don't, I'm not sure if you have elderflower in San Francisco, you might be too hot, but we yeah, make we're, this we're way too hot for that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's the that's under the the, the slow food um, uh, my slow food hat. Yeah, I love this because I think this changes their lives. I think it really does. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I never got to be around a farm till I was in high school, and it changed my yeah. life. So yeah, and and also actually, funnily, um, you know, I've written a lot of books, as you may or may not know. But anyway, uh, my the last book I've written actually is one called How to Cook: A Hundred Recipes That Everyone Should Know, and I wrote this. Uh, for well really for two groups of people there's about 100 recipes that you can do lots of riffs on and that are you know even something like mac and cheese that you can then do lots of variations on or an omelet or a loaf of bread blah 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 all these different things and anyway this is for people who are convinced adults who are convinced they can't cook because maybe they uh, concentrated as many of our education systems do on a learning a set of academic skills and then missed out on the practical skills because like my dear lovely Dominica nuns um you know the subliminal message is well why would you want to learn any of that you don't need it oh by goodness do we need it or watch it because then at least you're in control of the food you eat and all of that but anyway um so here in Ireland as in many other countries it's the same I think in many parts of America although Alice Waters has managed to Changes in California. Oh, yeah. Uh, school garden and all of that. Uh, but basically, um, uh, the so what I, I'm trying to hear our education system, even back to my time at school, we were encouraged to really concentrate on the STEM subjects, on, you know, science, maths, uh, all of the, those sort of subjects. And basically, uh, why would you want to learn how to cook? Uh, so now I, it's such a disaster where really, in my opinion, where and many others too, we're failing in our duty of care to our young people by letting them out of school without being able to feed themselves properly, without having the basic practical skills to feed themselves properly. And boy, have we had a wake up call during COVID. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I'll tell you, yeah, I'll tell you one other story. I'm probably going on far too long, but this uh, after the first lockdown, which is about over two years ago, almost really almost to the day now, two years ago, I think it was Friday the 13th of March, as far as I remember. Anyway, um, that we suddenly had to lock down and nobody could travel more than 5K from their home uh, without, unless it was for meds or for food or something. Anyway, I remember I had this, this woman in Dublin uh, who's a friend of mine now she's she this woman could run the country she's incredibly able super bright woman CEO of a company her husband is also CEO of another company a multinational food company anyway suddenly she's at home with two small kids her life normally would have been she'd have got the kids up in the morning got them dressed maybe get a little bit of breakfast into them drop them off at the creche pick them up in their jammies on the way home read them a story into bed. The weekends, they ate out uh, for, you know, breakfast, lunch and supper. And so here she is, suddenly the reality of having to try to do 21 meals a week, feed her family and her children 
and so on. All the restaurants closed, all the backup gone, nobody allowed to come in to help her in the house or anything like that. So she was like in tears on the phone and saying, oh my God, can you just tell me, give me a few basic things I can do. The woman could scarcely make toast. Well, now this is a woman who could run the country. And she suddenly realized that with all of her skills, none of them were any use to her in this situation. So I hope that we don't forget the, the lessons we learned during COVID and that whatever else we do, whether you're an astronaut or a dentist or an anthropologist or whatever, that you take a little time out to learn how to cook. And we must teach our kids how to cook. And we don't have to reinvent the wheel. In Finland, for example, and some of the other Nordic countries, no child can get leave, leave what you would call high school with a, I can't remember the name of your final exam there, uh, but with yeah. here it would be a leaving certificate or whatever they call it. Yeah. And uh, A-levels in, in, in the UK, you can't get that unless you can prove that you can cook a certain number of dishes. It's part of the educational system. They teach them how to sew, by the way, as well, and how to grow. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but we just have to realize that is how, the importance of that. So I've been running a big campaign over here uh, to you know, try to get the curriculum, to get cooking, practical cooking, re-embedded in the school curriculum. Not that it was ever properly embedded in it in the first place, but absolutely embedded in it now. And at the moment, you know, they do, uh, we certainly in, in, in some of our schools, there's some wonderful teachers who take it on themselves to do it. But in some of our schools, we have domestic science, they call it, or social and scientific or something is another one. Right. I mean, what the heck do I need to know the theory of, a, of how you boil an egg or a blinking or how a microwave works? Anyway, what difference does that make? You just need to be able to do to actually do it. Uh, but basically, um, so you know, there, it, it, they. But basically, at the moment, domestic domestic science is a subject. But you know something? It kind of has a stigma. You know, if their kids are kind of a little bit, if they reckon they're a little bit um, slower or something, they say, well, why don't you do domestic science or woodwork or something? Right. You know, you do that. You know, and yeah. so. Subliminal messages that this is of lesser value than science or 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 you know or geography or one of the other or maths for that matter. Uh, so we have it all back to front. We need both. We need both. Yeah. Absolutely, Darina. I wanted to thank you for being on the program. I really enjoy getting it. I could talk to you all day. It's just, it's just been a <laughs> wonderful pleasure. <laughs> oh, well, you can do a bit of editing there. I'm sure it's far too long. No, no, There's not at all. If just I would say that just if anybody's in Ireland, um, you know, our where of course our borders are open again. We're here ready to welcome, uh, you know, lots of visitors back to Ireland again. And the you know the food scene in Ireland has changed out of all knowing in the last couple of decades. So wonderful food now from the pubs to the thing. Like everywhere, you have to do a bit of homework before you come. Uh, but then also if people are down in the Cork area. We're out in the East Cork, east of Cork City, very close to the sea. And Ballymenu House Hotel is a country house hotel and inn that you can stay in. The cooking school is about two miles further along the road in the middle of, uh, of a hundred acre organic farm and 10 acres of garden that are open to the public all the time. So you can come and see that. And by the time you come, uh, hopefully our afternoon cookery demonstrations will be open to the public as well. So you know, pop in and tell me where you're, heard uh, this program and uh, uh, we'd love to welcome you so there's and then 
also I think my new book Forgotten Skills has just been reissued yes. uh, republished uh, in the US and then of course Irish traditional cooking I think that was that's still going after 30 years so um, so that, so you can have a little taste of Ireland in America too. Forgotten Skills is an amazing book. I recommend it to anybody. I'll put links to your schools and your books on the bio when I run it for the programming. Ah, oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I'm sorry I kept you, uh, Dean, far too long. On Not the, at all. You- I'd, I'd oh. be happy to talk to you for five to 10 hours. I, I loved it. It was wonderful. There we are. Good. Well, you have a lovely rest of your day, and I'll let you get going <laughs> to your next appointment. Thank you, and thank you very much. And if you, when you're in Ireland, come and see me and we'll go and have a look at that library, okay? I 100% <laughs> promise I will do that. If I get to go anywhere, I'm going to go to Ireland and I will visit uh, you. Well, that'll be so nice. And join us for lunch at the school as well. That There's would be an, great. From invitation, okay? Thank you. Bye then. In Bye-bye. the meantime, happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you as well. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. I'm looking forward. That was my conversation with Darina Allen of the Ballymaloo Cookery School and author of several award-winning books, most recently Forgotten Skills of Cooking, that is being reprinted. We have links to her information on the bio, including links to her cooking school and publications. I want to wish everyone who is celebrating a great St. Patrick's Day today and really have fun and whatever you're cooking up, I'm sure it's going to be delicious. Tomorrow in the program, we will have Carolyn Hennessy, who has written the most recently the official Guinness cookbook. She will round out our week of Irish authors on the program for St. Patrick's Day, starting with J.P. McMahon. I love talking to Caroline, who is a graduate of Darina's Ballymaloo Cookery School. She was a great and informative guest, and I really loved getting a chance to talk to her. Her cookbook with Guinness recipes is inspired and really everything in it is just a hands-down winner. I really do recommend it. Links for this book will also be on the bio for that as well. And that'll be tomorrow. I want to thank Kitty Cat Fan Club and Asian Man Records for letting us use Talk About Love as our theme and end cap song. You can check out the band's information as well as the publishing house information on the biographies link. I hope you guys have a really great St. Patrick's Day and keep cooking. Getting